Christ is risen. risen It's nice to begin Bible class with that again. Very good. Uh, A couple of things before we get started. Um, So in the in the Lord's Prayer, the catechism teaches us to pray um, in the Lord's Prayer. What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that we need for. And it goes on this list, including good weather. Um, I sometimes wonder if sometimes we forget that we need to keep on praying for that. You can't stop, even in the spring. So, um, but also realizing, of course, that sometimes, uh, in the catechism, that comes right after good government. Also something that we can never stop. Give us this day our daily bread, always in need of. Um, But sometimes, uh, it changes. The weather in the government changes, and, and we, yeah. Uh, another note, just for information, something for you to watch for uh, on April 30th, two weeks from today. I won't be here. Uh, I'm working on arranging a guest preacher. My backup plan is for Pastor Muhlenhardt to come from Cottonwood, in which case, that's why on the calendar it says 1030. If I am able to get someone from MLC, just watch Watch the announcements in case it's the regular time or if it's at 10.30, okay? Um, and also, if it's at 10.30, there won't be Bible class for sure. But watch the announcements. We'll let you know if there will be Bible class if it's not, okay? Secondly, or maybe that's three, um, as I was preparing for this week, I was reminded of a, uh, is a resource, of, of a volume book um, that's really useful for just a, you want... Uh, an introduction or information about some topic. There's a number of terms as I was going through this. I thought, you know what? I should just, I know what it means and I can find it in other books, but a one volume, uh, it's a, was called Lutheran Encyclopedia. Um, I think it's out of print as far as I know. This, this copy I got from the Tucson. I bought it but it was from the Tucson Public Library. Uh, really, really useful. Um, names you can look up, you know, Church Fathers, so I could look up any of the names that we were uh, going through just to see an encyclopedia uh, uh, entry. But they have that online now, and I don't, I didn't, I should have put the address up. It's like, and they just call it Cyclopedia now, or Christian Cyclopedia. Uh, and it's on the Concordia, it was published by Concordia Publishing House. It's on their website. It's like cyclopedia.cph.org or something like that. Um, I'll, I'll get that and share that with you. But um, a really useful, just kind of quick, when you want to look something up like that, that church history kind of things, there are a lot of those things, but other, or when you see terms, we're going to talk about things like this. Terms like that are in there with a, an article saying, okay, what, what is that? Uh, all right. Finally, well, we're just kind of back up a little bit. So we had, we had gone through the first four names on the sheet of the Ten Church Fathers. But I think I forgot something when we were going through Polycarp. We must have read it, but I just wanted to, I don't think I remember pointing it out. So when we were talking about Polycarp being martyred, and he's in the stadium and he's answering these questions. So if you look on the bottom of the, the first page under Polycarp, you must have read this, but I, I, it's so funny and interesting that. So this is the last paragraph on that first page. Polycarp entered the stadium. There came a voice from heaven, be strong. So down later on, the, the, the proconsul is asking who he was. He tells him to swear by the genius of Caesar's, repent, say away with the atheists. So remember, we, I said that that was their term for the Christians. They called them the atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman pantheon, the Roman gods. So he says all he'd have to do in order to curse Christianity or to, to give, he says, he wanted Polycarp to say, away with the atheists, which was what they were saying, right? And so it says, Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium. He motioned toward them with his hands and groaning as he looked up to heaven said, away with the atheists. (laughs) They were calling the Christians the atheists. 
He says, okay, I'll say away with the atheists. <laughs> away with the atheists as he looks at the, at the crowd in the, in the stadium. Uh, which is just kind of funny that he had the thought to do that. Then we had talked about Justin Martyr. I think we had, um, we had read through the, the two quotes on the sheet. Um, one thing I didn't point out, I don't think, he is the first one to mention um, Sunday. We've talked about the Christians gathering on the Lord's Day um, and versus the Sabbath, which was Sunday. But uh, Justin Martyr is one of the first records that we have of calling the day actually Sunday. So this is a quote. I don't have it here, but uh, he said he wrote, We hold our common assembly on the day of the sun, because it is the first day on which God, having transformed darkness and matter, created the world, and on the same day, Jesus Christ our Savior rose from the dead. So just a very early, why do we worship on Sunday? Because we call it the day of the sun, he says, because that's when God began creation and the day our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, we'll uh, talk a little bit more on on the Lord's Day and Sunday in the sermon today because the gospel for today is going to take place on Easter Sunday and then the next Sunday, which is would be today, Sunday after Easter. So let's move on to Irenaeus or Irenaeus. He, uh, so he's a bishop in France, which is why on the sheet on your timeline, you see him on the bottom part on the west in France there, Bishop of Lyon. He is, it might be a stretch to call him a disciple of Polycarp. We know at least that he heard Polycarp speak. So he, they were acquainted or knew each other. Whether he studied under him or not, I don't know for sure. Um, but he's often referred to as a disciple of Polycarp. But you see how that is now a, a link then. So Because Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So you have this, this linkage in the early church of they, they were connected to you know, kind of they could look back and see their connection to Jesus. You know, they ever play that, like, um, what is it, Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon or something like that, where you name some individual and they, how many degrees away they were from Jesus here. He writes against, um, well, he's got this, his main work that's, that still exists or that we have is it's called Against Heresies. Um, and the heresy that he's dealing with is what's called Gnosticism. And we should, we'll want to talk about that here a little bit today and then we'll have a separate section for some of these errors uh, later on. And that's what the quote that you have is from, from Against Heresies. Um, just to, so that you get a, get a start. Gnosticism... Comes from the name comes from the Greek word for wisdom, or for, I'm sorry, for knowledge, which is gnosis. And so, Gnosticism is, if you were to English, Englishize it, knowledgeism. Um, anytime you have a term that's ism, generally, it's taking something that that probably starts positive and. In, when it becomes an ism, it's taken to an extreme. Yeah. Uh, generally. And that's not always true. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, what, what should we say? You know, communism? Like, where does that start? If that's whatever the, the root is, like community, that's a good thing. You know, uh, or socialism, so, so, society, right? The, the interaction with, with other people. But it's push to an extreme. Um, so, well, what, is, what exactly is this? That's what this quote will help. And actually, in early, the early church, this writing is one of the ways that we know anything about this teaching that was kind of going around. There was stuff being taught and, and, and passed around. Some of it gets very weird, including this description. And it's hard, it's hard to summarize, but um, 
Let's look at this quote, and I think you might be able to get a sense for it. So this is Irenaeus writing, but he's writing describing what people are teaching in this Gnosticism, okay? There are three elements in man. The material, which necessarily perishes since it cannot possibly receive the breath of imperishability. The psychic and an animate being, which lies between the spiritual and the material and extends to either one as it has the inclination. Then you have the spiritual, endowed with a divine spark, which was sent forth to be shaped in union with the psychic and be instructed with it in its conduct. This psychic element is the salt and the light of the world for which the universe was constructed. And the Savior came to this psychic element, since it has free will, in order to save it. He assumed the primary elements of those beings which he was going to save. From Akamoth, wisdom, he took the spiritual. From the Demiurge, the creator God, he put on the psychic, Christ. And from the constitution of the universe, he acquired a body which had psychic substance and was constructed by ineffable art so as to be visible, tangible, and subject to emotion. He acquired nothing material at all, for matter is not capable of being saved. Don't expect that you understand. I don't understand all what's what going on there. But notice something. So he's talking about mankind. He says there's three parts. You've got the material, the psychic, and the spiritual. Notice what it says about the material, so the physical. He says, it necessarily perishes since it cannot possibly receive the breath of imperishability. A, a, a common theme throughout this Gnosticism so, um, is a, a rejection or an understanding of, of um, the material world, that the material world is, is not a good creation of God. It's, it's sort of, in, in, in the material, it's sort of an accidental bad cr- creation of God that he made the material world of an evil God. Um, and that our goal in is to escape that. Darling? So the, the, this idea of the, the gnosis or the wisdom is what, what is, that's the answer to the, the problem of trying to escape from the bodily existence. So in short, like, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of weird stuff. There's the Demiurge and the Monad and the Demiurge is, the, is the, like Jehovah, Old Testament God. And then he has a baby with Sophia, which is wisdom. It's weird. It's all weird, but the, I, I don't understand it. But one important point out of the whole thing is that they, they downplay and the, the way that it speaks about the material world and the physical. Right? So you notice the last um, line on this. The he, so it's talking about Christ. So he comes on and he, he acquired a body which had psychic substance 
But it says he acquired nothing material at all. For matter is not capable of being saved. So it's this splitting up of the physical from the, from the, the spiritual. And kind of like our goal as human beings is to live in the mind. That's very interesting for us because that's the world we live in. That's the way people talk. And that's a, it's a very common, um, you know, so we don't call it Gnosticism anymore. But that's in many ways sort of a modern worldview. Uh, and one thing that technology is kind of allowing to happen where people are living in their mind, basically, that, you know, you don't have in-person interaction and that part of life is, not, is, is kind of diminished or even distinctions between biology, biological things such as sex. Like those, it's, it's an extension of, of ancient Gnosticism. Um, in the, that's where, so these ideas that we're living with are nothing new. It, you know, we they don't have, like again, we don't use the word Gnosticism for it, but that is still what we're dealing with. Um, uh, this is, if you ever want to read up on it, um, this volume, Gnostic America, uh, kind of goes into that, and it goes into great depth. So it, it's it's a bit much um, on ancient Gnosticism, and it's very complex and very uh, tough to tough to wrap your head around. But um, then to go and to look and to see the. the the way people think and speak in our day uh, mirrors that, and it, you, it, it comes from there. Uh, so just the, the, the downplaying of the physical reality. But do you see why this is important? We just celebrated Easter, yes? If Christ did not take on, well, I mean, we could go back to Christmas. If he doesn't actually take on human flesh, um, <laughs> The Jesus who died, who was born and died, and then rose, is the physical that we, you know, the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas is the. That's what we celebrate as Christmas, is the joining of the divine nature in Christ to the human, in human flesh, never to be separated. The flesh is not something for us to run from. We believe that God created the world in its physical, it's not only physical, it's not only material, but that is part of a good creation that he has miraculously joined together, only to be separated by death, which is the enemy. That's not the goal to separate from the body. It's the goal to be united with the body in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the body, and that is the physical soul. Um, so already challenging that. And again, like it was a weird, it's all kinds of weird when you read some of the, the, the ideas of how this came to be. So then, then, then you talk about this knowledge, this, it was kind of a secret knowledge that some would have and some would not have this knowledge that would allow certain people to be able to separate themselves and kind of live in the mind and uh, separate from the, from the flesh. Uh, he's got another, another quote that I came across since then. Uh, he writes, how can they say, talk about the Gnostics, how can they say that the flesh, which is nourished with the body of the Lord and with his blood, goes to corruption and does not partake of life? He says, if, so you've got flesh, right? And it's been uh, nourished with the body, the flesh of the Lord, how can the body be something that we discard? Um, Johann Gerhard, uh, he picks up on that in, uh, in his uh, Handbook of Consolations. The how, <laughs> our, our goal as Christians is to be united with the body of our Lord. That's why we go to communion, yeah? Um, is, is to be united with his flesh and blood um, so that going into the grave, our body does not decay, does not just simply go to corruption. That's what that, that uh, quote there, it says, the material necessarily perishes. And that's what the, the, the future for all material, for all 
uh, fleshly stuff is, de- is just destruction. It just goes away, and eventually there will be no physical. Um, but the Bible doesn't teach that. We believe in the resurrection of the body. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me and my heart, the, the, the you know, maybe immaterial, is joined then with, will be again united with the, we long for that. We long for the resurrection of the body. So Irenaeus, let's see if I got anything else on that. Um, He also has a a quote. He says, one should not seek among others the truth that can be easily gotten from the church. So in Gnosticism, you're seeking after this knowledge, this truth, but they were not looking in the scriptures for it. It was kind of this knowledge that you would get from, I don't know what, um, from some, some secret revelation somehow. He says, you don't, you don't go looking for the truth that you couldn't. He says, you could have easily gotten it from the church, from the scriptures, in the teaching, uh, and the preaching, but then you go and chase, chase it somewhere else, and that's a mistake. That's what he says. Uh, he says, for in her, in the church, as in a rich treasury, the apostles have placed all that pertains to the truth so that everyone can drink this beverage of life. All right, then Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria, so he is um, a teacher, the head of the catechetical school of Alexandria. Um, so again, we're in now Egypt. That's, he, now he's still listed now on, on the east. In Egypt, in Alexandria. His successor at that school is Origen. We're going to be looking at Origen here in a little bit. His main writings is what's called the trilogy. It's three writings. And uh, what is one? One of them is called Exhortation. The second one is called the, the Tudor. And then the third one is like miscellany, like miscellaneous uh, writings. The second one is the one that the hymn that we've been closing with, Shepherd of Tender Youth, comes from a, a, a part of that second, Christ the Tudor, which is... Um, what, what you have printed there, but before that. He is also writing about Gnosticism. Um, but what, what Clement does is he uses, he'll use the term gnosis, um, knowledge, but he's, he's careful to direct what the source of this knowledge is. The content of this knowledge is not the secret knowledge whereby you remove from the physical but the content of knowledge is in the scriptures. Um, so he does have an emphasis on knowledge, but, but the point is how do we get this knowledge from the apostolic faith recorded in the, in the, the writings of the apostles, divine revelation. Um, he'll write about Greek, uh, Greek and Old Testament, uh, or the Old Testament, comparing Greek philosophy with the Old Testament. Um, and, and making the, the case that they both ultimately lead to Christ. Um, so, you know, an example from uh, the epistle of Barnabas. The Lord delivered the gnosis, the knowledge, to James the just and John and Peter, the apostles. They delivered it to the other apostles, the others to the 70, of whom one was Barnabas. So just that the truth, the knowledge, was passed on from the apostles to those they taught. We don't have to go searching for this secret knowledge somewhere else. It's been handed down to us. This is the, uh, a full version of that um, it's a poem, is what you'd call it, that, that has come to us in A Shepherd of Tender Youth. Of course, I just imagine this was Greek originally. Um, and then to put it into a, so you're not going to be able to, like, it's not like translating it line by line, but you can see phrases. Um, where is that? Yeah. Shepherd of royal lambs, assemble thy simple children to praise holily to him guilelessly with innocent mouths, Christ the guide of children. Um, 
savior of the race, shepherd, husbandman, helm, just his names for the uh, for Jesus. Guide us, shepherd of rational sheep, guide unharmed children, O holy king. You have some of those phrases in that make it into our translation. You can see the translation was done 1821, or the guy lived in the 19th century there. Um, where, uh, phrases that nourished with tender mouths, filled with the dewy spirit of the spiritual breast. Let us sing together simple praises, true hymns to Christ our King. That phrase comes in. We've got at the end of the hymn. Um, but, so, you know, when, when we say this is the oldest of Christian hymns, it's not like they were singing hymn 515. <laughs> exactly as it is here. Certainly they weren't singing in English. Or it wasn't necessarily even sung as a hymn. It wasn't even written as a hymn. It's written in this part of this, this larger work. But it does come from there. And so it's attributed and come. And that's why you'll see Clement of Alexandria at the bottom of the hymnal page. We're always, with hymns, a lot of times we're looking for the earliest source. Where did this come from? Where did this text come from? And they didn't, a lot of times the people didn't just make stuff up. You look back, you know, just like last week we sang uh, Christ Jesus laying death strong bands. Uh, and at Matins last Sunday, but also this morning, we'll sing between the readings, uh, Christ is a risen, Christ is a risen, da 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 when Luther writes Christ Jesus lay in death strong bands, he's not making that up. He's basing that on this sequence hymn that went along with that Christ is a risen. And even the tune goes with that. Dun, 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 dun. Um, Christ Jesus lay in... Um, I don't have it in my head right now. Um, the strong band, da, 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 da. The, that, that tune is drawn from that 1100s, what they called a sequence hymn. Um, they, they didn't just make stuff up. He took something that was older and he made a, a thing of it. Uh, you know, in this case, a, a hymn. Same thing with Shepherd of Tender Youth. All right. Let's look at Tertullian. Tertullian, now, now we're moving further west to Carthage in North Africa. Uh, so now he's listed in the west. He's in Africa, but is, you know, Carthage, North Africa is, if I had a map, <laughs> further this way on the map. Possibly a lawyer. He studied jurisprudence. Um, uh, You know, one who studies law, not maybe exactly what we think of as a lawyer. Um, he is the first person uh, that we have a record of him using the term Trinity. Of course, he doesn't make up the doctrine, the teaching, but just to use the term to describe God as three persons in one God. And, you, and putting the, you know, and, and of course the Trinity, right, is simply a, a mashup. Tricycle, unicycle, three, one. And they just put the two together. And so, well, what do we call it? We can't say that God is, uh, we don't have three gods, but we have, we have one God. But there certainly is a three there, isn't there? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're not going to try to logically figure this out and like have it all made clean. We'll just kind of put the two words together. Please, the first term. First one to, to use the term. This, um, this quote, uh, this is commonly attributed to him, uh, the blood of Christians is seed. That's where, the first quote there is where that comes from, your tortures. So your tortures accomplish nothing. He's talking to those who would, who would be persecuting the Christians. He says, you're not actually going to do anything. You're not going to accomplish anything. Your tortures accomplish nothing, though each is more refined than the last one. Rather, you are an enticement to our religion. You're not going to squash us, no matter how you, you, you push. Uh, the, we become more numerous every time we are cut down by you. 
The blood of Christians is seed. Or someone said the, the, blood of the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, when, when persecution comes, that's in, you can see this throughout history. The times of the greatest growth for the Christian church is times of persecution. Uh, I thought about that when, you know, you had in the, starting in the 80s, I guess, into the 90s, and it still lurks around. It was a thing called the church growth movement in the church. Started out in California, in Pasadena, Fuller Theological Seminary, um, which sounds nice, right? We want the church to grow, but it was, it was, it was not. Um, and, it, you know, kind of a, applying business principles and, and where that was the main goal. Um, what's interesting is that those who were really insistent that the church needed to grow, and they, you know, very much, you know, if, if we want to force it, and not, it's not force it, we can't, but, um, There's this one thing that would cause the church to grow. You know, some time of persecution. You know, uh, I don't know that we should ask for that or seek that out. But um, if, if that's the goal, that would do it. I, I don't think that would hurt the church. It won't hurt the church. Um, Jesus has made promises that, that the church will stand. You know, so we sometimes look at our, our day and we wonder, is a time of more... There are, there are claims of, of persecution against Christians today. It happens, I mean, certainly across the world. But even, you know, more locally, you've got that, you know, we've got court cases with, you know, where religious freedom is the, the thing that's being fought for um, and debated on whether that is a religious freedom or not. And, and those whose... Religious freedoms are being impinged. That's what they're, they claim, even in court. That, that's a claim of a persecution, right? Um, again, we can debate whether that is the case. Like, um, I remember this story about this uh, church out in, this was in Arizona. And, uh, you know, the, the, the headline was, Pastor goes to jail for holding church. Turns out they had he had built a big garage in his backyard, uh, a, a shed to have church in, and he refused to follow fire code. He refused to get the smoke, the uh, like fire extinguishers or something like that, and wouldn't let the the fire marshal inspect the building to to be, you know, up to fire code. So it wasn't just that he was you know like house church some people a couple people gathering in his house to pray. It was, he was, it, but, you know, sometimes some claims of persecution might actually not be. Like, you, you can get a fire extinguisher. <laughs> you know, there's some things. On the other hand, is it possible for a, 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 a municipality to make it almost impossible for someone to build a church or something like that if they were opposed to that? They could do that, and that could be a means of persecution if they, you know, you, know, you give so much red tape that they just eventually just give up. And, and that's legitimately the government's, like, prerogative, right? to protect us from ourselves. Right, right. So, like, if that's a, a you know, legal thing, you know, and a legitimate thing for them to, to do that, they're not necessarily persecuting just because you make, they make you follow the rules everyone else has to follow. Right. On the other hand, they, if they wanted to, they could use the, those same things to make it impossible. That sort of, you know, if you've ever been part of, like, some kind of safety inspection... You know, an inspector can find something if they want to find it, <laughs> or they can let they can sometimes let things slide if they want to do that too. But the next the next um, 
quote there on the, on the sheet, I had to look that up to see what was the, the context of this one. It says, it must be believed because it is absurd. It is certain because it is impossible. It is believable because it is inept. So he's talking about the Christian faith. Um, this is actually where it comes from. Um, this is in the Latin. Talking about the, the Son of God died. Um, it is credible because it is inept. Because it and then, then he says, then he rose, resurrect. You see resurrection in that? He rose from the grave. Do you see uh, sepulcher, the word for tomb? Rose from the grave. Um, it is certain because it is impossible. I think not to say that you can only believe in things that are, uh, that, that, that we believe against our reason, but that the impossibility of what we believe, it, it's, it is something to be believed. Um, and, and that makes, that gives it a certainty. Because, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's so ridiculous of a story that it could only, we could only believe it if it actually happened. And in fact, that is why we believe it, because it did happen. The fact that it would seem impossible for someone to die and then rise again, that's what makes it in what he says, believable. And make, that, is, that is our certainty that this thing is true, despite the fact that it doesn't... It, it, you know, if it was... We wouldn't have to believe it if it was just... Um, if, it, if it was not far-fetched. We would, you know... If we said that Jesus sneezed, we, wouldn't, we don't have to believe in that. But to say Jesus rose from the dead, and, and, we, and we don't even have to be certain whether Jesus sneezed or not, that doesn't matter. But that he rose from the dead, that he died. Um, he's, right, that, 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 that the meaning of his phrase and what he means um, has been debated, and there's a lot of different ways people could take that. But uh, just understanding that the there was something. Where was this? It was in one of the religious liberty cases, and I think it had to do with one of the Supreme Court justices. Some line of questioning that one of the Supreme Court justices, which Supreme Court justices are not to be, there's not to be a religious rule or test for offices. Like you don't like if you believe certain things, you're ineligible for office. Not supposed to be that, but they would ask these things about, you know, does your religion make you believe? You know, for example, like, you know, asking, imagine a, a, a legislator on the judicial committee asking a judge whether he believes that life begins at conception. And they claim that that's a religious belief and therefore that should be excluded from their judgment when it comes to, to the law, right? course we'll look at that and say well that's not only a religious judgment that's a I mean that's kind of a biological sort of thing um, a scientific fact but there's many who claim that that to say that life begins its conception is a religious conviction um, where was I going to go with that um, oh <laughs> the, 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 someone had pointed out said like, if you're going to get your, you know, you're going to get wound up about us believing that life begins at conception and you think that's a crazy religious conviction, we believe things that are a lot crazier than that. <laughs> you know, like for us to believe that, I mean, that, and that in a sense, it's not really a belief so much as a, that's a, I would say that's a scientific fact, right? Um, that's something that's observable, observable. What is life? When does life begin? You know, we, we can find that, you know, we, we know things. Um, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe that he's going to raise us too at the last day, even though we put corpses into the, bot, into the ground. Um, like, so, you know, if you're going to, like, decide whether someone can serve in public office because they believe something that is, you think is a little bit crazy, I mean, you're talking to Christians here. We believe things that are a lot crazier than that. In other words, it's impossible physically and naturally. 
Like, but the Christians used to are outnumbered even today. Yeah, and the population. And always, always have been, so I think. And they're a, a large population that will say no, it won't be done, even if it's time Yep, yep, and. So we all continue to be in the same, same sort of position. Uh, the last quote, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, with the academy, with the church? So this, it, it's shorthand. Um, Athens is the center, center of, of uh, scholarly life in Greece and wisdom and learning and knowledge. And, and, and Jerusalem is it's shorthand for the center of the church, start of the church. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has the academy with the church? In other words, we, we don't operate with the same um, requirements. Kind of like when, when St. Paul says, Greeks look for wisdom, uh, Jews seek miracles, but we preach Christ crucified. Uh, we don't have, we're not looking for the same things. And so um, it's sort of a, that, that also like that's used you know, to, to suggest that in the early church they, they understood there's a separation between what the church taught and what the philosophers taught. And um, that we don't, we, you know, they did, we're not ignorant of them, but they said that they, they don't, doesn't necessarily pertain, doesn't have to do with it. Hippolytus. He, um, is a bishop um, so he, um, and this is in Rome, so the bishop of Rome was Calixtus, and uh, Hippolytus accused Calixtus of heresy, of false teaching, uh, namely the false teaching of, these other words, patropassionism and Sabellianism, monarchianism. Uh, if you ever watch um, the Lutheran satire video, on where um, St. Patrick is going through these um, analogies, bad analogies, St. Patrick's bad analogies, and, and these two Irish peasants uh, accuse him of all these, when he tries to use all these bad analogies, accuse him of all these false teachings regarding the Trinity. These were some of them. Modalism is one of them. The idea that God isn't triune, but he's just, he just changes, um, like changes costumes. So, you know, initially he's, he puts himself forward as the father, and then he goes back and he changes into the costume of Jesus, and then he changes out and he becomes the costume of the Holy Spirit. Um, so they had these ideas in the early church, and he, so he sees this in Calixtus, who's the bishop of Rome, and so when, when he does that, the, the people around him acclaimed him then the bishop of Rome, of course. So the bishop of Rome eventually becomes known as the pope, so in the list of the popes, this is a, a one place where you have an anti-pope in place. Of, so you know, the one was the Bishop of Rome, but then the other one is acclaimed the Bishop of Rome. No, so who's the real bishop? And that's happened a number of times in the history um, where you had multiple popes at one time. It's not a, not a highlight reel in, in the Roman Catholic Church history, um, but you have that, and this is one of those cases. Writes the refutation of all heresies. So he's writing against, again, also things like Gnosticism, which I think is what he's doing in that first quote. Christ came in order that he might be a law to every age and that by his presence exhibit in his own humanity as a pattern to all men and thus convince man that God had nothing, made nothing evil and possesses free will, having in himself the power of willing or not willing and being able to do both. So in, you know, when you have the diminishing of the physical, so if God made that, then God made something evil. And that would be a false conclusion for us to, to conclude that therefore God made the evil. Um, and, and, and an evidence of that in Christ's own humanity. So either, if you believe that, if you believe that the, the physical in man is evil, then you either have to believe that Jesus did not become real fully man, Right? Because then, then he would have participated in that evil. 
or that would have been part of it, if, if humanity is evil all by itself. Um, and, and the physical. Either he didn't or he didn't uh, actually come. Or wasn't fully human. Um, he has a quote about the soldier who has authority must not execute people, and if he is commanded to do so, he must disobey the order. So there was a struggle in the early church about how do we understand our place in society and even vocation such as such a soldier. There was always a question of whether it is proper for him to, in this case, um, talking about um, a command to execute, that there were times when he'd have to disobey an order. Um, Uh, on the, the last one, I think this is against the Gnostics, Gnostics or the Montanus. Um, well, yeah, against Montanus. They invent new fasts and feasts of me- and meals of dry foods and rad- meals of radishes. The, the Montanus and there were other groups that were basically convinced that the world was going to end. And so they demanded a, a really strict asceticism. So asceticism is a rigorous moral discipline. Um, and they kind of instructed people, okay, the world is going to end. And they would, they would talk about having like um, visions or revelations about what God told them that you should do in these last times. So that, you know, they, it, it has, it's an awful lot like modern day uh, millennialism. Um, the, the idea that Jesus is going to come back and, and reign on earth for a thousand years. So there's some elements of that floating around um, that he's writing against. So when he writes against all heresies, there's a lot of teach, other stuff going on at the time, people teaching things. And that leads the church to say, well, you know, when something like that pops up, what do they do? You know, here they're writing against it. Eventually, what we're going to see in the next session of, of history, we're going to see church councils start to get together where the, the bishops are going to get together when something comes up, some false teaching comes up, and, and we're going we're gonna to write a statement that's going to say what is the Christian faith in, oppose, in opposition to this thing that people are saying, that some, some preachers are going around saying. And so you're starting to see some of this. We're going to talk more about that later, but Hippolytus is a part of that. You know, and it's nothing new, too. Religious leaders, uh, someone just asked me this week, what's the deal with uh, fish on Friday in Lent? Um, like, that's, you know, a modern Roman Catholic thing, but it has roots all the way back in this thing of, you know, well, we've got to, to make rules about what, what should be eaten at this time or another thing. Well, there's not much on origin that, uh, as far as the, the quote. I just have the, the one quote here. Um, Origin is in Alexandria, and then I think later in Caesarea. Uh, he, one of the others too, I think it might have been Tertullian. One of the others was, it sounds like, was actually raised by a Christian family, but I forget which one now. <laughs> they kind of blur together in my head. Um, where his father was, was martyred. But uh, Origen was also born to a Christian family. Oh, here, his father was martyred. But there was another one too. Um, so here, that asceticism, origin was an ascetic. That doesn't, it's not as though these things are, you know, you've got, you've got two groups and they're like a big, big line in between them and they wear different colored jerseys and you know who you're fighting with. There were strings, so like you had some of these writers, they would, they would talk about knowledge too, but they maybe had a better better view than, than others. Um, and so you can have someone like Origen, who is an ascetic, who does follow a, a rigorous moral discipline and he writes about that, but maybe not the extreme. Not any one of these fathers, let's, let's be clear about this, not any one of these fathers will we be able to read their writing and not find something maybe find wasn't quite right. None of them are inspired. None of them, like, and so we don't, like, we'll pick out, we can pick out with just about any church father, we can pick out quotes that would be entirely in line with the, the Christian faith and, and the scriptural truth, and we can probably find writings in them that are not so good with any one of these. And you can do that, you can 
also do that with Martin Luther. You can do that with other, any other, you can, you can do that with me if you want to. You can, I bet you could find something. Oh, wait till I'm dead. That's usually when it's easier to do that. <laughs> no, you, certainly, if there's a, there's a false thing, I would want to know about it, right? But we're all, all teachers in the church are capable of that. And so our, our it's, it's delightful to read them, and we basically, we, we don't cherry pick in the sense that we read them with discernment. We know that they're fallible. We know that they live in their time, and they've got strains of thought that are going on in their world that they're dealing with. Some of them fall into error in that way. Some of them fight against some of those errors. And some of them, they talk differently at different times. That's all kind of normal. And so we'll find quotes. From origin, I remember, you know, the guy in, in, in school, you know, he's a horse, it's a heretic. Um, and he, and he, he, he wrote some things that were wrong. But he wrote a lot of things that were also correct. Um, his hexa plot uh, it was a, it's a six, six uh, version, uh, la like language version of the Old Testament. This is a, a copy of it in like, the, in different languages, different versions to compare uh, versions We'll talk, we're out of time. So, we'll, meant, we'll talk the, the origin quotes and then Cyprian and then we'll move on to, the next section we'll talk about is the, the early persecution in the church. Um, and then we'll talk about some of these heresies. Let's do uh, the same stanzas we've done before. One, four, and five. I'll just give us a minute or two to figure out what we're going to do.